First is Psalm 19, which you'll find on page 552. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now we're going to read some words of St. Paul. To Timothy, there at verse 10, and we will finish chapter 4, verse 5. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet, the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and know from infancy, and from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. 
Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is God's word. Father, indeed, our prayer this morning is that you would cause our faith to rise, our eyes to see who you are, and that encountering once again you in your words, words of power, would indeed their truth prevail over the unbelief that lurks within the hearts of all of us. So, Father, please give us faith in you as a wonderful God once again this morning, we pray. Amen. I mean, so, uh, as Matt said then, we start a short series, really, just five, I think it'll be, uh, in um, Timeless Truths for Changing Times. So, uh, essentially, reformed evangelical doctrines that are under attack. Now, you may sit there and think, doctrine, oh, brilliant, uh, that's exciting. It is exciting. It is. Uh, I hope we'll see that even this morning. So, we'll look at the, um, today, the sufficiency of Scripture. Then uh, you'll see a pattern here. We'll see the seriousness of sin. Then the substitution of the Savior. Then, disappointingly, the reality of resurrection. Not that resurrection is disappointing. Obviously, it just doesn't begin with an S. And then, finally, the service of all the saints. Don't worry, we'll get there in later weeks. First, then, uh, this morning, we think about Scripture. Now, taking the Bible as an authoritative word from God, that is under attack. It's always under attack, but that's very obvious at the moment, both within the church and from outside, outside the church. So last week, the writer Ian McEwan, uh, you may or may not like his books, some I think are great, um, he was uh, publicised, he was at a festival publicising his new book, and uh, happened to make during his interview, it was somewhat of a throwaway comment, I think, but that during his research for his latest book, he thought that religion was distinctly unhelpful in making compassionate, reasonable judgments about people's lives. Now, that's the sort of quotes that some love. Oh, look, Ian McEwan, popular. Uh, we can do something with that. So, first one example, here was uh, the lead item or the lead article in The Times two days later, written by Oliver Cam, one of their writers. So the headline was, Secular Values, Not Religion, Make Us a Tolerant Society. And uh, just one little extract. The decline of religious observance in modern democratic societies is an important civilising influence. Not all inhumanity is due to religion, but religious obscurantism coexists with inhumane conclusions. And what is it? Well, th- thank you. I- I'm glad that not every element of inhumanity uh, is down to religion. That's sort of decent of you to declare that. But what is that? And the whole article was saying, thank goodness, thank goodness, as a culture in the West, we're moving on from the wickedness of the Bible. 
Now, part of, me, I, part of me feels really sad when I read something like that. Part of me just wants to laugh. Because historically, that's ridiculous. So here's another non-Christian writer. Uh, Melvin Bragg, uh, how you describe him, polyglot, does everything, doesn't he, really? Uh, but writer, journalist, broadcaster. So he wrote this book, the Book of Books, about the King James Bible. He's not a Christian. Uh, but he uh, declared this. Recently he wrote it. I wrote my book because at first I was irritated and then appalled at the way the Bible's profound and beneficial effect on humanity has been rubbed out of our history. If people want to turn their back on faith, that's one thing. To turn our backs on our history is to embalm ourselves in the superficialities of the present. That's a good sentence, isn't it? That's why he makes a lot of money. To turn our backs on our history is to embalm ourselves in the superficialities of the present. What's he saying? He's saying, well, here we are in the year 2014 and we think we're all so wonderful, but we're very embarrassed about what we thought 25 years ago. Oh, it was just cringeworthy. And 25 years hence, we'll be very, very embarrassed about what we think in 2014. And that's in a tiny time scale. You don't want to embalm yourself in something quite so superficial. What a load of nonsense, he says. The Bible is responsible for producing the society that we are, for good in many ways. Or if that's a little bit sort of academic, uh, here's another book I've been reading. This is good. Uh, the Book That Made Your World. So written by uh, an Indian guy, educated in the West, but has spent all his life, uh, uh, became a Christian, and then spent most of his life, working life uh, in India, uh, working amongst the rural poor. Vishal Mangalwadi, The Book That Made Your World. He tells one story, he tells many stories in there, but here's one. So uh, not long after, he and his wife had moved from uh, uh, the city out to rural India. They met Sheila. Sheila was the fourth child of a low-caste family. And they met her aged 18 months as she was being left in her cot to die. And she was clearly malnourished and clearly only days, weeks away from the point of death. And they saw this little girl. And Vishal and his wife said, we'll take her to the hospital. No. Well, we can get you some medicines for her. No. Don't interfere. Leave her alone. But she'll die. Yes, we know. That's what we're expecting. But, but, but why, would you, why would you do that? Well, well, because she's our fourth child. We have two sons. We have one daughter. The daughter can cook and clean for the two sons. And um, she is useful But a fourth child is not useful to us. We have to pay to feed her. We have to pay to clothe her. Oh, age 10 to 12, we can marry her off, but then we need to borrow money for a dowry. So she's not useful to us, so we want her to die. Michelle and his wife appalled, went to the uh, the elders of the village and said, you've got to do something about this, they're just going to let the, the daughter die. Well, of course they are. It's the sensible thing to do. You will offer medical care and help for a few weeks, but they'll have to bring her up for 10, 12 years. So, of course, you should let her die. That's the sensible thing to do. Now, he tells that story and makes the point, in that culture, 
no one thought that Sheila's parents were wicked or unkind or unreasonable. They were acting in an entirely sensible, consistent way given the secular culture in which they lived. Why not? What is wrong with that? So for them, it's an entirely rational decision to allow an 18-year-old, so excuse me, 18-month-old girl to die. Now at that point, you've got to ask a question, for us here, in this room or in the West, what? I presume you think that's wrong. I hope you think that's wrong, just to allow a little baby to die. Why is that wrong? Why I to ask Oliver Cam of the Times, why, why is that wrong? What is wrong with that decision? You may not like it, but you think your secular reasoning is superior. They think their secular reasoning is sensible. Which is better? On what basis can you condemn them? Really? You think that, what was the title? Secular values make you tolerant? We've got to tolerate that. Whereas I take it that if you were a Christian, you'd have a very different perspective on such a thing. You'd say that is wicked and it's wrong because, why? Because God has made all humans in his image and of equal worth. Of equal worth. Therefore you can't say the fourth child is less significant than the first child. You can't say that as a Christian. The Bible stops you saying that. There is a reason for compassion there which in a purely secular worldview, there just isn't. So the Bible is under attack from all different sources and places. Um, by contrast, uh, what I've printed at the top of the sheets there, if you've got it on the back of the, uh, the service sheets, um, all of you will recognise this because it's from the Church's Statement of Faith, which I know you would all know intimately and uh, off by heart. But uh, here it is. Uh, here's our comment. Here's what the Church, if you didn't know it, has to say about the Bible. God has revealed himself and his promises in the Bible, which consists of the Old and New Testaments alone. Every word was inspired by God through human authors, so that the Bible is originally given in its entirety the word of God, without error and fully reliable in fact and doctrine. The Bible alone speaks with final authority and is always sufficient for matters, all matters, of belief and practice. Hurrah! is what we think of that. But let's have a little think why, how the Bible describes that itself. We're in 2 Timothy, we're really just looking at a couple of verses, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. If you don't know this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, his uh, young companion, or young, 40, that's young, isn't it? A young companion, uh, uh, Timothy, probably something like that, in Ephesus. Timothy's a pastor under pressure. So in the city of Ephesus, lots of false teaching, lots of attack upon the Old Testament scriptures and the gospel accounts. And so Timothy is told by Paul, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but have confidence here in the scriptures. So just two things we're going to say, uh, straight from what it says uh, in 2 Timothy 3. All scriptures God breathed, first, and secondly, it is sufficient for life and salvation. First, that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 3 and 15. You know how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, there's two senses to that probably meant it. The first one, the primary one, is that in its origin, it's God-breathed. God spoke these words. What you have in your hands in the scriptures are the very words of God. And if you've been a Christian for a while, just be amazed at that. And don't forget how wonderful it is that the man, excuse me, the one who created everything in this universe would speak to mankind. Wonderful. Uh, the, um, I've got a friend, who, uh, James, who's moved out to Somerset a little while ago, and uh, he went with a minister, they've gone to a church, it's very formal, there's not much life there, uh, there's never been a history really of Bible teaching there, and they've gone and a group of them to hopefully try and slowly turn the church around and uh, preach the Bible, see people uh, become Christians, that sort of thing is what they're hoping because it's a traditional church, when the Bible is brought in, it's brought in by uh, all those who are robe, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really marched in and elevated, and everyone turns and bows to it. Now, of course, there's something very just traditional about that, and it can be meaningless. But he is one who's come from this church and gone there said, I quite like it. I quite like it. Because it is a reminder that I'm going to submit to what I'm about to hear. God rules over me by his word. I don't think we'll do it here, but uh, he quite likes it. Now, sometimes people can be a bit old about this. I, I've been told numerous times that I worship the Bible by uh, liberal Christians, uh, which, just because I have a high view of God's words. Now, that is a silly thing to say. But this is very precious. I mean, I, I, and I think we ought to love the scriptures in the same way we might say we love our eyes or ears, in that if we had no eyes or no ears, or if I had no eyes or ears, I'd lost my use of them, and I met you for the first time, what would I discover? One head, two ears, two eyes, one nose. Good, good. You're not a two-headed monster, that's nice. How much more would I learn? Mm, not a lot, probably. No eyes, no ears. You say, right, God, I want to find out about God. What can I find out? Mm, there's something there, but I don't know what. If we lack, and then that's the same way we should love, in one sense, the Bible, because we meet the Lord. He doesn't just communicate information. He has relationship with us through the words that he speaks. Now, of course, as uh, we say in the little doctrinal statement, as Paul would recognise here. There are human authors, of course. That's why you have these different letters or, or the different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're written by, the clues are there, um, by particular authors. Of course there are human authors, but you still get the perfect word of God, just as he intended it. It's a helpful little uh, verse you get in uh, chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 21, Peter tells us, the prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And the scriptures are produced as whoever it is, Matthew, Luke, Paul, is carried along by the Holy Spirit. You get a a helpful little parallel to that in uh, Acts chapter 27, where Luke records, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a shipwreck, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way and were carried along by the wind. So there's the picture of uh, uh, someone on board a ship, he's holding the wheel, but really... Yeah, I'm holding the wheel, but the the ship goes where the wind wants it to go, carried along by the wind. And that's how the Bible describes itself. What you have here, of course there are human authors, but they're carried along by the Spirit of God. They write precisely what the Lord wants us to have. So what we have in the scriptures is not like light passing through a stained glass window and it kind of gets a bit distorted, you know, it goes through a bit of yellow, you get yellowy light, a bit of red, a bit of reddy light. It's not that God speaks through a human author and you get a sort of, you know, slightly distorted, someone's take on what God is saying. What you have is precisely, precisely what the Lord wants us to have. And so Paul can write here, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, all of it. Every bit, every full stop, it's all, not in the translation necessarily, but everything, all of it, every word. The bits we like, the bits we stumble over at first. But you can't pick and choose. It's all from him. It's not a la carte. But of course that's one of the things that is under attack. Here's a little quote uh, from Rowan Williams, previous Archbishop of Canterbury. He's talking about the book of Revelation. What do you make of this? The book of Revelation in the Bible contains two scripts of two authors. One has a clear and haunting authority, but the other is tightly written malice. Pen driven into cheap paper, page after page of paranoid fantasy, like the letters clergymen so frequently get from the wretched and clinically disturbed. I don't get many of those letters. Uh, <laughs> but you're really saying, in the book of Revelation, you've got two authors, and, and one is wonderfully divinely inspired, and the other's nuts and paranoid. How do you decide? Which bit is which? How do you, on what basis do you make that decision? In a manner which isn't just arbitrary. And you might decide one thing. To be honest, Rowan, I think it's all pretty good. There are bits I think are a bit scary, but I, they make me sit up and take God seriously. How do you decide? You can't do that. All, all scripture is God-breathed. So it's God-breathed in its origin. That's the main sense of it here. I think there's a second sense as well, probably, that it's God-breathed in function. You know, on a cold day, uh, you get your hands out, you rub them together, and you go, (laughs) and you breathe on them, and it warms them up. Well, there's that sense here. Scripture is God's breath upon us. It is the living and active word of God. So we hear the words of God and think, oh, yeah, that's right. It breathes life into us again. It warms us up. As Christians, it opens our eyes, perhaps, if we're one who's never yet a Christian. It's the breath of God. It's a present word amongst us. You, know, you get the daft little stories told. Uh, a Sunday school teacher 
finishes the lesson on a Sunday morning and says, hey, why don't you, um, why don't you go this afternoon, take some time out and uh, write a letter to God and, and bring them back next week and, and we'll see uh, what you've written to God. And they'll go away and most of the good ones come back and the, the sort of conscientious ones come back and the next Sunday they bring their letters. And one little boy wrote, dear God, we had a really good time at church today. Wish you could have been there with us. No. Wrong, sadly. He's with us. Of course, these are his words that he speaks afresh. They're contemporary, they're living, they're active. You know that there's a sense in which words are more like people than things. So if I, uh, if uh, after the service I came up to you and said, uh, what do you, uh, come, come and have lunch with us next Sunday. Would you come and have lunch? And do you go away with your whatever spouse, flatmate, friend, and say, oh, Matt Fuller's words inviting me to lunch next week. I don't know what he thinks, but his words invited me to lunch. No, no. My words are an extension of me. You can't rip them apart like that. And so God's words are they're an extension of him. And words are more like people because they change us, don't they? Someone says, even something banal as, oh, you look terrific today. Someone says, golly, you look haggard. You look really haggard. You know, words change us. They're more like people than things. It is when people doubt that God addresses them in the scriptures in his word. It's when people doubt it that they turn elsewhere, I think. Is God there? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to go to a church where there's lots of bells and smells and sort of sensory experience, and I'll meet God in the mystery. He must be in the mystery somewhere. That's how people go sometimes. Or, does God love me? Really? Me, personally? I need, I need some sort of physical experience of him manifest in front of me because I'm just not sure. See, if you doubt these words are addressing you personally, you'll go elsewhere. But don't go elsewhere because the Lord is addressing you in his word. All scripture is God-breathed. And how you respond to it is how you respond to him. So if you dismiss the word of God, you dismiss him. If you ignore the word of God, you ignore him. If you cherish the word of God, if you delight in the word of God, you're delighting in him. All scriptures God breathed. And therefore, more briefly, secondly, it is sufficient. It's sufficient for life and salvation. All you need, so verse 15, uh, Paul reads that... um, He writes to Timothy, you know how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you, well first, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scriptures here, Old Testament, probably Paul has primarily in view, understood in the light of Jesus Christ. All you need to become a Christian, to keep you going as a Christian until the day when Jesus returns, the day of salvation, it's all here. All you need is here. So have this as your authority. Uh, briefly, uh, some would have seen this little, uh, I mean, picture might be a bit grand, this little uh, diagram of uh, people tend to, uh, people 
will tend to, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, an atheist, or whatever it may be, you have one of these things as your authority in life. It could be the Bible, if you're a Christian, hopefully. It could be reason. So some will call themselves Christians and say, yes, I, I like the Bible, it's interesting, but, well, I'm Rowan Williams, so some of it I just think is written by madmen. Uh, miracles can't really have happened, can they? Things like resurrection never really happened. They're just not reasonable, some would say. Uh, others uh, have experience as their authority. Uh, whereas the Bible is nice, but really there are bits of it which don't, they don't feel right. They don't, they don't resonate with me. And so I need to find God elsewhere, in the sunrise, in the water, whatever it may be. And then some would be tradition. Yes, the Bible is nice, but I'm a Roman Catholic, say, for one example, and what the Roman Catholic Church has said for centuries is more important than what the Bible says, or at least as important. Now, all of those, for all of us, are going to have some impact on how we live our lives. But, but you've got to have the Bible as the final authority, because that's the one which is God-breathed. And as Paul said, it's sufficient for salvation. It's all you need. Let me give you one sad comment on this. Uh, the Church of England is in a bit of a mess, if you hadn't worked that out. Uh, we're a Church of England church, Anglican church, and happily so in many ways, given the, uh, the founding documents of the Church of England. But uh, let me just give you, bear with me on this, but... Here's a sad comment on the state of affairs at the moment. Just before Christmas, uh, one report was published, the Pilling Report, happened to be on human sexuality. But uh, let me give you a quote, which just shows that there's a difference from how the Church of England largely thinks to how the Bible does. So here's a quote from the final report. A minority within our groups, that is the, uh, the dozen or 16 who, who wrote the report, the minority within our groups makes a single view of Scripture both the first and final authority to, both, to which both tradition and reason must be subordinated. Good. That's good. That's what you should do. However, it remains that the majority is not persuaded either that the meaning and implications of Scripture are so clear and certain or that the Scriptures can be read so independently of the Church's traditional human reason. You see what they're saying? The Bible's not very clear. Don't say it's not true, it's just not very clear. And therefore we just have to blur, you know, have it, put it in the mix as one element amongst how we feel, how we reasonably think. And so that's the, the framework of discussion at the moment within the Church of England for you know, should there be same-sex marriages. Well, the Bible's not very clear, is it? So, what is reasonable? How do we feel? How do you feel? How do you feel this morning? Do you feel we ought to do that? That's the sort of framework of discussion. Now, I don't want to be over-provocative, but in one sense, I'm not sure that's very different from Genesis 2, when the serpent says to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Are you sure that God spoke? Are you sure you know what God said to you about... And it's a timeless problem, a timeless sin, a timeless way of rejecting God. I'm not sure what you're saying is very clear, God. So best I do what I want to do. Now the Bible is clear. It's very clear. 
It's sufficient. It's sufficient for life. Excuse me, it's sufficient for salvation. And then very briefly, secondly, uh, verse 17. It'll equip you for all of life. Uh, The scripture is useful or profitable, and it'll equip you so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You've got to understand that. Riley, of course, the Bible doesn't tell you how to fix a car, doesn't tell you how to fix a bike, doesn't tell you how to perform brain surgery or uh, turn your computer on even. It doesn't tell you any of those things. It does give you plenty of principles and instructions and laws which will help you navigate. But more fundamentally than that, God changes you. So verse 16, all scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He'll change you by his word so you know what to do. How do I... I don't know, there's nothing in the Bible here about this moral decision I've got to make. But if the word of God has shaped you, you'll instinctively know what to do. Last year I took swimming lessons. Uh, I've never had a swimming lesson in my life. I thought age 40 I was fed up of swimming doggy paddle and being overtaken by women uh, three times my age in the outside lane. And I just didn't understand. This is ridiculous. I'm 40. Why can I not swim faster than this 90-year-old? It's ridiculous. Um, The maths doesn't work, I know. Uh, it was interesting. You know, I learned a lot about swimming. And of course, what, he was a good coach. So what did he do? He taught me. He rebuked me. He corrected me. He would laugh and say, no, no, no. no. Not like, no, you're not listening very carefully, are you? I'm trying. Um, and of course, after a while, swimming becomes a bit more instinctive. I won't demonstrate. There's no water. It would be embarrassing. Uh, But after a while, you know, the stroke, it just becomes a bit more instinctive. You know what you're meant to do. You don't think about it so much. You just do the right thing after a while. If you have someone shaping you, not like that, like that, not like that, like that, okay. So now I jump in the pool and I, you know, I win all sorts of medals. Obviously not. But you just get shaped. The word of God changes us. And in that sense... I'll thoroughly equip you for everything you need. See, there are principles, there are laws, there are direct instructions, do not steal, you need them. But more than that, the word of God will form you, shape you, so you know what's the right thing to do. And in that sense, it is useful, verse 16, or profitable. When I was at Theological College, I had a lecturer. I remember once he spoke on Psalm 19, and you know the words are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. Uh, And he said, you need to go out of here saying to yourself, a minute spent within God's word is worth £10,000. A minute spent within God's word is worth £10,000. And I walked out the room thinking, David, you're slightly overstating your case. I can do a lot with £10,000. For one minute, I'm not sure. But it's the sort of thing that just sort of niggles in your head. Did you say, well, what else does the Bible say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Okay, so it is more profitable to spend time in God's word than okay. Okay. Well, maybe not 10,000, David, but certainly, uh, but then after a while you think, well, what else gives me salvation that endures into eternity? What else enables me to hear my God speak clearly and enables me to respond to him rightly? What else gives me forgiveness? What else gives me eternity? And you start to think, you might quibble over the numbers a little bit, 
But actually, why would I do that? No, no, hold on a minute. This is the most profitable use of my time there is. Because it equips me for the rest of life. A minute spent within God's word is worth £10,000. You may not like that. But let it worm away in your head. What do we do then, practically? Oh, look, if, you, if, if you're in any sense persuaded of the profitability of God's word, that you know this is God addressing you personally, shaping you, that it's sufficient, that it's what you need for life, what do you do? Well, three things very, very briefly. One, introduce intimacy. That helps sometimes. Sometimes I find it useful. You wake up in the morning and say, what are we going to do today, Lord? And you open your Bible and you read it, and you turn it all into personal things. So you read 2 Timothy 3.16, for example, and say, Lord, the Scriptures are you speaking to me, and they will teach me and rebuke me and correct me and train me, so that I will be thoroughly equipped for everything you want me to do today. I'm not persuading myself of something that's untrue. That's true. With all sorts of Scriptures... So introduce intimacy, sometimes a helpful thing to do. Think hard. Often we don't hear what God is saying because we don't listen. It's very easy isn't it, to, to read a bit of Bible, shut it, think about it, and the day goes on. Rather than you take some time each morning to open however long you spend, doesn't one sense matter if it's five minutes or 45 minutes, better a bit longer, or somewhere in between for most of us, I guess. But to sit down at the end and think, what have I, actually, what, have I, what do I take away from this? I've read that bit of Bible. I'm not just going to let it go. In a sentence this morning, I've heard God say to me, and then pray in response. I remember years ago being told, uh, as one of the Puritans, if we don't meditate on a sermon, we're spiritual bulimics. We eat food, but it'll never do us any good. It'll never nourish us. So introduce intimacy, think hard, and we can help one another. We can't help one another, just with gentle questions. What's the Lord spoken to you about recently? What have you been most struck by? Anything he's told you you've got to change? Anything you've been delighted with? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God uses his words, and so he'll take stubborn, resistant people like you and me and change us. He'll take blind people stumbling in the dark and make them see. He'll take people who are exhausted and with his words, make them soar on wings like eagles. Listen to him. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, we do want to give you great thanks that you don't leave us stumbling around in this world. You speak. You've spoken information to us. That's wonderful. But you also speak relationally to us. You address each of us personally, intimately, with words that affect us, transform us, change us. So Father, even this morning, would your words continue to be at work by your Spirit, giving us greater confidence in who you are and a desire to hear you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.